Chapter 9 of Mars is My Destination by Frank Belknap Long. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. Chapter 9 The clang of the opening port was still ringing in my ears when I walked out of the skyship with Joan on my arm and looked down over the big metal corkscrew directly beneath me. I knew straight off I'd made a mistake. I should have looked up at the sky instead. I should have squared my shoulders, drawn the crisp, tangy air deep into my lungs, and established rapport with Mars more gradually. A delay of only a moment or two would have spared me the too sudden shock of finding myself three hundred feet in the air, dazzled by an unexpected brightness, and supported by nothing I'd have cared to trust my weight to on Earth. We were standing on a thin strip of metal, a mere spiderweb tracery, and if I had lost my balance and gone crashing through the guardrail, there would have been no mountaineer's rope to save me. What was worse, I'd have taken Joan with me. The danger was illusionary, of course, solely in my mind. The underwriters go to a great deal of expense and trouble to make sure there will be no tragic accidents when the big risks have been left behind in space. The guardrail was chest high and sturdy enough, and no one had ever gone crashing through it. But you can't reason with a feeling, and for an instant the yawning emptiness beneath me made me feel that I was already past the rail, twisting and turning, flailing the air in a three-hundred-foot plunge. I was sure that Joan was experiencing the same kind of irrational giddiness, for she drew in her breath sharply, and a shiver went through her. A fear of great heights is one phobia that is shared by practically everyone. The big metal corkscrew beneath us was the landing frame into which the rocket had descended, and we were standing high up on that enormous spiral which curved down and outward like an immense silvery cocoon. A figure of speech, sure, but not as wide of the mark as most of the images that flash across your mind when you're keyed up abnormally and a lot of new colors and sights and sounds rush in on you and upset all of your calculations as to how sober-minded you're going to stay. Your grasp on reality slips a little, as if you were holding it right before your eyes like a book and wearing glasses so strong that their print blurs. You're in a fantasy world of your own creating, seeing things that can't be blamed on whoever wrote the book. A fussy, unimaginative little guy, perhaps, who has spent most of his life within sight of his own doorstep and has never felt the great winds of space blowing cold upon him. There's a big night-flying sphinx moth with death heads on each of its wings, and there were times when I'd thought of the Mars ship as not so different from that kind of moth. And now it was as if the sky ship had turned back into a caterpillar again, and spun a cocoon for itself, and was quietly reposing in the pupa stage, its rust-red end veins folded back, its long length mottled and space-eroded where the atomic jets had seared it. There was nothing wrong in giving my imagination carte blanche to go into free-fall like that, because when you're standing on a dizzy height, staring down at a new world forty million miles from Earth, you've got to let the strangeness and bursting wonder of it, along with the dire forebodings, take firm hold of you. Otherwise, you won't feel yourself to be a part of it, 
won't be equipped with what it takes to probe beneath the surface of things, in a realistic way, and feel like a native sun even in the presence of the unknown. Three hundred feet below me, more activity was taking place than I had ever seen crowded into an area of equal size on Earth. Just as a guess, I'd have said that the spaceport's disembarkation section was about 600 feet square. But right at that moment, I had no real stomach for guessing games. Only a hollowness where my stomach was supposed to be. Far below, the disembarkation section was in high gear, and the clatter of it, the rushings to and fro, the grinding and screeching of giant cranes and atomic tractors, and rising platforms crowded to capacity with specialized robots, most of them scissor-thin, and all of them operated by remote control, would have half-deafened me if I had been standing a hundred feet lower down. Even from the top of the spiral, the clamor had to be heard to be believed. But what astounded me most was the newness, brightness, sharply delineated aspect of everything within range of my vision. I could see clear to the edge of the spaceport, and the four other securely berthed rockets stood out with a startling clarity, their nose combs gleaming in the bright Martian sunlight. The big lifting cranes stood out just as sharply, and although the zigzagging tractors looked like painted toys, red and blue and yellow, I would have sworn under oath that not one of them cast a shadow. Twenty-five or thirty human midgets, who were moving in all directions across the field between machines that seemed too formidable to be trusted, had the brittle, sheen-bright look of figures cut out of isinglass. Another illusion, of course. There had to be shadows, because there was nothing on Mars that could have brought about that big a change in the laws of optics. But, by the same token, the length and density of shadows can be altered a bit by atmospheric conditions, making light interception turn playful. So I didn't strain my eyes searching for deep purple halos around the human midges. My only immediate concern was to reassure Joan in a calm and forceful way and escort her safely down to ground level, without letting her suspect that I shared her misgivings as to the stability of the spiral. It was ridiculous on the face of it, but, as I've said, you can't argue with a feeling that whispers that your remote, dawn-age ancestors must have felt the same way when they climbed out on a limb overhanging a precipice and felt the whole tree begin to sway and shake beneath them. Hold tight to the rail and don't look down, I cautioned. There's no real danger, because a first-rate welding job was done on this structure. Barring an earthquake, it should be just as safe a century from now. I shot a quick, concerned glance at her, along with the warning. I guess I must have thought she'd be more shaken than she was, for she smiled when she saw the look of surprise in my eyes. It took me half a minute to realize that my guess as to how she'd be taking it hadn't gone so wide of the mark. Her pallor gave her away. A century would be much too long to wait, she breathed. Another five minutes would be too long. If it's going to collapse, I'd rather find out right now. I nodded and we started down. Several other passengers had emerged from the port and were looking up at the sky or downward as I'd done. 
three men and a woman had emerged ahead of us and were almost at the base of the spiral. So far, nothing had happened to them. I've often toyed with the thought that there may be windows in the mine we can see out of sometimes at oblique angles and around corners and without turning our heads. I could visualize the passengers who were descending behind us more clearly than you usually can in a mind's eye picture. Each face was in sharp focus, and there was no blurring of their images as they moved. It was as if I was staring straight up at them through a crystal-clear pane of glass. In that astonishingly bright inner vision, why look up and back when I did not doubt its accuracy? Commander Littlefield was wasting no time in setting a good example. He descended the spiral so many times that great height meant nothing to him. He'd be ascending and descending at least ten more times, just in the next few hours. But this was his big moment. I could already picture him striding across the disembarkation section to the administration unit, with his shoulders held straight, and announcing officially, with a ring of pride in his voice, that the trip had been completed in record time, and the rocket had been berthed successfully. He was descending now with a confident smile on his lips, his Mars legs buoyantly supporting him. Behind him came the small group who had been closest to us in space. They were doing their best to stay calm, but there was a slight flicker of apprehension in their eyes. Our section had been the first to disembark, because Littlefield had agreed with me that it might have seemed a little strange if I had been accorded that privilege and it had been denied to the others. Why give anyone who might have outwitted every screening precaution the idea that I might be a man apart, with so big a job awaiting me on Mars that getting started on it without delay was damned important to me? It was natural enough for one or two sections to be cleared fast and emerge with the commander, but others would have to await their turn in line, and quarantine checkups could drag along for hours. It's funny how long it takes to get even a little lower when you're this high up, Joan said, her fingers tightening on my arm. We're not anything alike as high as when we started, but nothing down below looks any larger. We're not a fourth of the way down, and the human eye is a very poor judge of distances, I said reassuringly. It would be better if you let go of my arm and just kept your right hand on the rail. We sway more this way. When you look down from the observation roof of the Northwestern University building, you can see all of New Chicago and practically half of Lake Michigan, she complained breathlessly. But it will never make me feel as giddy as this. You had a firmer support under you, I said. But not a safer one. There is no danger at all. You can be absolutely sure of that. What could happen to us? It was one of those silly questions you sometimes ask when you want to reassure someone you're a little concerned about. But a silly question can sometimes be answered in a totally unexpected way. Suddenly, terribly, and with explosive violence. It can be answered by a voice of thunder out of the sky. Or a wild, savage cry in the night or in a quieter way, but with just as terrifying an outcome. There are a hundred cataclysms of nature which can give the lie to what you thought was only a silliness. No matter where you are or how secure you feel, 
never ask what could happen in a world where nothing is sure, where no one is ever completely safe. Death is death. From end to end of his big estate may be a lifetime's journey for some men, but he can cover the distance with the speed of light, because death is one space traveler, the only one, who knows exactly how to outdistance light. Even if you're alone in a steel-walled vault, it's a dangerous question to ask. It's ten times as dangerous when you're descending a swaying metal corkscrew 40 million miles from Earth, and there may be someone 80 feet above you who has failed twice as death's emissary and would be covered with shame if it happened again. I felt hardly anything for an instant when the dart sliced deep into the soft flesh between my shoulder blades. I didn't even know it was a dart and kept right on walking. It was as if a bee had stung me, a tired bee who couldn't sting very hard. There was just a little stab of pain, a burning sensation that lasted less than a second. I felt it all right, but it didn't startle me enough to stop me dead in my tracks. A thing like that seldom does if you're moving steadily forward. It takes a second or two after you've felt the pain for the implications to dawn on you. When they did, the pain was back, and this time it was excruciating. My whole shoulder was laced with fire, as if a red-hot iron had been laid against it. If right at that moment I'd smelled an odor of burning flesh, I'd have been sure there could be no other explanation, despite its transparent absurdity. Even then I kept right on walking. I staggered a little, but I bit down hard on my underlip to avoid crying out. I didn't want to alarm Joan until I was sure. It could still have been just a very severe muscular spasm, the kind of agonizing cramp that can hit you in the leg sometimes in the middle of the night, so that you awake out of a deep sleep bathed in cold sweat and with your teeth chattering. That was what seemed to be happening now. My teeth started chattering, and I could feel sweat oozing out all over me. There was only one difference. The pain was in my shoulder, not my leg, and it wasn't easing up the way spasm pain does after a minute or two. It couldn't have gotten worse, because it had been excruciating from the beginning. But other things started getting worse fast. The burning sensation spread to my lungs, and my throat muscles started constricting so that every breath I drew was an agony. I couldn't pretend any longer, and I didn't try to. I went down on my knees, clutching at my chest, and swaying back against the rail. I suppose I must have groaned or made some sort of sound, because Joan swung about and was kneeling beside me in an instant, her face ashen. I must have looked terrible, or all of the color would not have drained out of her face so fast or her eyes gone quite so wide with alarm. I made a half-hearted try at straightening up, but only succeeded in bringing my collapse closer to zero count by sagging more heavily back against the rail. Darling, what is it? Tell me. Her voice was demanding, wildly insistent. Please, I've got to know. If it's your heart. I shook my head. I went through a kind of little death, just trying to get a few words out. Something struck me in the back. See, 
what it is. Feel around with your hand. All right, darling. Just don't move. No, you'll have to lift yourself up a little more. Try, darling. Your back's right against the rail. I did more than try. I helped her by gritting my teeth and flopping over on my stomach. But the pain that lanced through my chest made me almost black out for an instant. There was a clamor above us now, and I thought I heard Littlefield's voice raised in a shout, followed by a scream of terror. Possibly someone had seen me slump and jumped to the conclusion that the spiral was collapsing. There was no chance of that, so I couldn't have cared less how close to panic the people up above were. Right at the moment it didn't concern me. I was only concerned with what Joan might find when her fingers started probing. If a bullet had plowed into me and her fingers came away wetly red, I'd know for sure whether it was as bad as I feared. It helps to know when there's a tormenting uncertainty in your mind along with physical pain. I could feel her hand fumbling with my shirt, getting it loosened. Then they were moving up, down, and across my back, cautiously, gently, with the nurse-like competence which women usually manage to summon to their aid in an emergency, no matter how shaken they are. After a moment her fingers stopped moving and she drew in her breath sharply. Being in agony and on the verge of blacking out carries with it a penalty. You can't always hear what someone close to you may be saying, even when it's of life and death importance. I caught a few words, however, just enough to know it was a dart before I lost consciousness, and her look told me what kind of dart it was. Or maybe it wasn't her look, just what I knew about darts in general. The kind of dart that's in common use today as a weapon is quite unlike the primitive blowgun darts of South American Indians a century ago. Science, like everything else, progresses, especially in the field of weapons. The modern dart is just as simple, in a way, but you take it out of a wafer-thin metal case as you would a hypodermic needle, and you fit the three parts very carefully together, and you use a liquid propellant to blow it out of a very slender tube of gleaming metal. And there's space in it for poison. It's handier, tidier, than the small robot killers with their intricate internal gadgetry, even though it requires precision aiming and you're much more likely to be observed while you're taking aim and be compelled to pay the customary penalty for murder. I'd managed to roll back on my side, and lying then in agony, trying to catch what Joan was saying, sort of telescoped all that for me, so that it registered in my mind in a more rapid way than it does when you're trying to explain it academically. Everything I knew about darts came sweeping into my mind, and I remembered something else that helped to explain the agony. The modern dart changes shape the instant it enters a man's body, opening up like a pair of six-bladed scissors, cutting, slashing, severing veins and muscles and nerve ganglions. And if it strikes an artery, it doesn't even have to be a poison dart to kill a man. The feathered part remains in the wound, only slightly embedded, but if you have any sense, you resist an impulse to pull it out. Because when you do that, it's very difficult to stop the bleeding. It's a job for a skilled surgeon, and Jones' book told me that there was no time to be lost. The wisest thing I could do was to put my complete trust in Commander Littlefield. 
The quicker he got one of the passengers or a crewman to help him carry me down to ground level and bundle me into an ambulance, the better my chances would be. Joan seemed to be one jump ahead of me, for she leaped up quickly and started back up the spiral. She didn't even press my hand in reassurance, but that was all right with me. I knew why she hadn't. Every second counted, and she loved me too much to be anything but firmly practical about it. I remember thinking, just before I blacked out, how adequate are the hospital facilities here? And what about the surgeons? Oh, God, what if they are fifth-raters? What if the hospital is understaffed? What if they bungle it, but good? When you black out and stay blacked out for a long period, questions like that lose most of their tormenting aspects. You may still feel emotionally disturbed by them, when the darkness lifts a little and you remember having asked yourself questions someone somewhere should have answered, if you'd only stayed around long enough to make a lot of friends and influence people and make them eager to oblige you in every possible way. But it isn't too disturbing, because you can't even remember what the questions were. The trouble was, I didn't stay blacked out. Not completely. I woke up at intervals and heard snatches of conversation, and I even saw the Mars colony. I saw quite a bit of the colony before they eased me down in a hospital bed and covered me with warm blankets, and I blacked out again. I saw the streets I'd traveled 40 million miles to visit, and the people I'd come to make friends with, and the kids in their space helmets looking precisely as they did on Earth. What further frontier did they hope to explore? Alpha Centauri? Or just one of the giant outer planets? I saw the prefabricated metal buildings, four, eight, and twenty stories high, with their slanting roofs, rust red and verdigris green-blue, in the early morning sunlight, and the stores that were all glass, and strange-looking supermarkets, with their almost cathedral-like domes. And just for good measure, Eight or ten bar-flanked streets with big parking lots where the bars gave way to barracks that straggled out into the desert and had a primitive 20th century shantytown look. There were people everywhere, but when you're propped up on a cot in a speeding ambulance, you can't tell whether the people who go flying past look just the way people do on Earth or have a more robust, happier look or a more restless and discontented look. It's even hard to tell whether young people or middle-aged people predominate, or just how many very old people there are, or how many infants in arms, except that there did seem to be an exceptionally large number of children, either being wheeled or carried or toddling along in the wake of their parents, or playing games with the fierce competitiveness of twelve-year-olds in fenced-in sandlots which no one had taken the trouble to pave. There were theaters, too, places of amusement, anyway, which you could tell featured lively entertainment just from the gaudy blue and yellow posters on their facades. That there were machines clattering past goes without saying. A tremendous amount of new construction was underway in every part of the colony, and if you just say Mars in a word association test, one man or woman in three will come right back with machinery. There were pipes, too, huge and branching, big, shiny metal tubes that arched above buildings and ran parallel with almost every street in the colony. 
A tremendous brood of writhing snakes was what they reminded me of, the artificial kind that kids delight in scaring people with at birthday parties, all mottled over with the bronze sheen of copperheads, but looking more like boa constrictors in their tremendous girth. Another kind of snake image flashed into my mind as I stared out through the windows of the ambulance at that interlocking power fuel network. It came swimming right out of the history books I'd pored over in fascination when I was knee-high to a grasshopper. Sure, they were diamondback rattlesnakes, and the Mars colony was right out of the old west of covered wagon and gold prospecting days. Of course it wasn't, because the 21st century technology had made it completely modern in some respects, but it was like the old west in a good many other ways. It had the same rugged, mirage-bright pioneer look, as if the desert sands were blowing right into the heart of the colony, swirling about, filling the windy places in the sandlots where the kids were playing with a haze that could just as easily have been gold dust that some careless, giant-sized prospector had spilled by accident when he had brought it in from the hills for weighing. Actually, there's nothing on Earth or Mars that can completely shatter that cyclic aspect of history. There's nothing so new that you can look at it and say, there's nothing of the past here. The break is complete and the past is gone forever and can never return again. It's just not true. The past does return, shining brightly beneath the bold new pattern, the daring new way of life that man likes to think he has chiseled from a block of marble that human hands have never touched or human eyes rested upon before. There's no such block of marble in all the universe of stars. Not really, because what man can visualize he has already seen, and it has become a part of his heritage, and the past of that heritage goes flowing into it, and he starts off with a veined monolith that is brimming over with human memory patterns, with not a few buried deep in the stone. But I've forgotten to mention the most important aspect of everything I saw through the windows of that speeding ambulance. It was the blurred aspect, the way everything kept changing shape and disappearing and pinwheeling at times. It wasn't surprising, because the agony was still with me, and I saw everything in fitful starts, in brief flashes, between bouts of blacking out and coming to and blacking out again. But what I did see I saw clearly, with the heightened awareness that often accompanies almost unbearable pain. When white-hot needles of pain are jabbing at your nerves, a strange, almost blinding kind of illumination seems to sweep into the brain. But instead of blinding you, it makes everything stand out with a startling clarity, and you can think clearly, too, and even speculate about what you've seen. It's as if you were caught up in a kind of sharper-than-life dream sequence. Or sitting in a darkened theater watching events take place on a dazzlingly bright screen. You may be doubled up with pain, but you keep your eyes on the screen, and very little that is happening to the actors and actresses on a dramatic level is lost on you. You even notice small details of background scenery that would escape your attention ordinarily and exactly what kind of clothes the actresses are wearing. Light summer dresses with plunging necklines or tight-fitting form-molded swimsuits. 
things you can't help noticing when you're doubled up with pain. It's why most of us fight to stay alive. Because nature has made us that way to keep us from letting go of the one thing that makes us stay in the pitcher's box when death is batting a thousand. Putting that much stress just on the engendering of life may be a trick and a snare when death has set so cruel a trap for the winners. But you seldom hear anyone complaining about it. It takes an awful lot of grief and despair and pain to make anyone angrily resent the sex snare and take to eulogizing death instead. It wasn't the reason everything I saw through the windows of that ambulance registered so sharply in fitful flashes, because I had that right at my side. Joan was holding my hand and squeezing it, and I only had to turn my head to make me just about the toughest adversary death ever had. But what I said about the lighted cinema screen still holds. What I did see, I saw with eyes that missed very little. And between the bouts of blacking out, the snatches of conversation I overheard came to me just as distinctly. Part of the time it was a woman's voice I heard, and I knew it had to be Joan's voice, because there was no other woman in the ambulance with me. But she wasn't talking to me. She was talking to one of the two men in white who were sitting opposite me. They seemed about a half mile away most of the time, but occasionally the long bench they were sitting on floated a little closer. The conversation, as I have said, came to me in snatches, and it could hardly have been called a running dialogue. The continuity alone would have gotten a professional scriptwriter fired, no matter how brilliant he was otherwise. The only way I can whip it into shape is by recording it as if it were continuous, filling in the part I overheard between blackouts with what I didn't hear, staying close enough to what was probably being said to keep the scriptwriter on the job and eating. I'm pretty sure this is a fairly accurate rewrite. Joan, what kind of hospital is it? I'm sorry, I, I guess I shouldn't have asked you that. You're on the staff, no matter how frank you might want to be. Dr. Mileaway. If I thought it wasn't a good hospital, I wouldn't say so, naturally. But it happens to match up very well with the eight or ten you'd want him to be taken to Earthside, if you had a choice. The facilities are first-rate, completely up-to-date. There are four surgeons I trust my life to with equal confidence, and one of them happens to be my dad. Joan. I hope to God he gets one of them. Doctor. There are only four surgeons. We don't get too many surgical cases in the colony. Not nearly as many as you might think. There's as much violence here, perhaps, as there is in New Chicago. But it takes a different form. We can't keep atomic handguns out of criminal hands as easily as you can in New Chicago, because the lawless element in the colony has more socio-political power and can get more weapons in that destructive category smuggled in. As you know, an atomic handgun has a very limited destructive potential, since there's no fallout, and it can only kill a man standing directly in its path. But when it does, there isn't much margin left for surgery. Joan. You mean criminals are in control here? Doctor. Oh, it's not quite that bad. Possibly about one colonist in twenty has dangerous criminal tendencies. The proportion is larger here only because it's a new society with a pioneering outlook. 
you might call it a wolf-eat-wolf -wolf society. On Earth, the dog-eat-dog -dog tendencies will probably never be completely eradicated. But we've gone a long way in that respect just in the last half century. Here we have further to go, because the dogs are still wolves. Jim, will you ever tame them? My husband may be dying right here. That doesn't look so tame. I think your Mars colony is a filthy jungle. Doctor, I didn't have much time to talk with Commander Littlefield, but from what he said, I'm pretty sure you don't really feel that way. I don't know why you and your husband are here, but the colonization board seldom gives clearance to people who feel that way about the future of the colony. In fact, I can't remember ever having met a man or a woman who managed to deceive the board, because the screening is the opposite of superficial. They go into your past history, I understand, and give you psychological tests I'm not even sure I could pass, convinced as I am that the colony is still Mars' best hope in a world where to stand still is always disastrous. There's no other sane solution to the population problem. Just to mention one of the 50 or 60 major problems we'll have to solve or perish in in the next two centuries. I have my moments of doubt and cynicism. Joan, you should be having one right now. How would you feel if you were taking your wife to the hospital for an emergency operation and didn't know whether she was going to live or die? Suppose it was your wife instead of my husband. We didn't even have time to set foot on the colony. If there's that much danger before you even... Doctor, just hold on a minute. Let's get this straightened out right now. It will make you feel better. No one in the colony tried to kill your husband. That dart was aimed at him from above, by one of the passengers. They're all being held for questioning, and if the firing mechanism is found on one of them... That, for me, was the end of the dialogue. But just before I blacked out for the last time, I saw a sign high up over one of the buildings. It read, Wendell Atomics. And I went down into the darkness with that sign flashing in big, illuminated letters right in the middle of the darkness. Wendell Atomics. Wendell. Wendell Atomics. And in much smaller letters, which were not nearly as bright, Endicott Fuel. The big letters growing larger, brighter, the small letters dwindling. Just as I felt myself to be dwindling, as I passed deeper and deeper into the darkness. End of chapter 9